This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, tough choices ahead for the incoming Secretary of the Navy. The Force's acting secretary tells you what he told Congress. An artificial intelligence blast for every agency. One of the leaders of the effort lists the goals and the potential problems ahead. And the number one story of the week, the Pentagon's Jedi is dead. The cloud conundrum the military's up against. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Navy's three biggest development priorities are a new next-generation fighter, a destroyer, and a submarine. But a memo from the acting secretary of the Navy, Thomas Harker, says its new budget request will make the Navy choose one of those three. Thomas Harker is the acting secretary of the Navy. Mr. Secretary, welcome. Thank you for joining me today. The message that you wanted to convey to Capitol Hill, recent confirm, or excuse me, recent budget and and uh, authorization hearings. What was that overarching message about the future of the Navy that you took to the Hill, sir? The overarching message, uh, well, first, thank you, Francis, for having me here. It's great to be on Government Matters. I've uh, long been a watcher and admirer of uh, all the things you do on this show, so thank you for having me. Uh, but the Navy's key message is that we had to balance our investment across all of the domains, uh, both with increasing our capacity, uh, modernization of our existing force, then maintaining and sustaining readiness for all of the current demands on our force. You have unique insight into all the balance between budget and strategy serving as the comptroller in the previous administration. What kind of insight did that give you when you went to the Hill as the acting secretary for this administration, Tom? In some ways, it was very helpful having been part of the development of the budget during the last administration, but then also being up here as secretary, I didn't see uh, all the changes that were made over the course of the last six months. And so I was uh, always in danger of drawing on data that had been uh, superseded. Uh, so I had to make sure that I stayed consistent with what the current priorities are and uh, was able to articulate exactly where the current budget stands. You've taken a number of initiatives uh, that this, uh, this current administration has emphasized and run with them during your time as the acting secretary. One of those is mental health. What is the work that's underway with the Navy that you expect to hand off to the next secretary and his team or her team uh, regarding mental health treatment? Thanks, Francis. That's an area that I've really been uh, focused on making some changes in. Uh, we've had a significant effort ongoing for quite a while inside the Navy to increase the number of embedded mental health professionals out with the front lines on the Navy and the Marine Corps so that we can provide access to care. Uh, that's something that I've really pushed on and accelerated. We've got an extra, um, we've doubled the size of that budget in the 22 budget. Uh, and we've also uh, taken some steps to destigmatize seeking mental health. One of the challenges we face is with our junior sailors and Marines, they have a stigma associated with the thought of going to seek mental health treatment. And so myself, the Commandant, the CNO, other senior leaders have pushed out videos that have talked about our own experiences with mental health treatment and some of the challenges that um, 
we've seen when people who don't seek that health, mental health treatment, how it's caused increased suicides and that sort of thing. So we've really tried to destigmatize people seeking mental health treatment and get people to go and request the help for uh, mental health issues just like they would for their physical health. And then also really push to increase access to care so that we have the care available for the sailors and Marines. That idea of equating mental health with physical health is the one that uh, the professionals have told me is the most successful. How do you intend and how do you believe the Navy should continue to drive that point? So one of the key pieces that we've been doing for a little while now and that we're continuing to push is embedding mental health practitioners uh, at the front lines on the ships uh, with the Marines so that they have um, junior sailors, junior Marines that have been, or junior sailors that have, uh, corpsmen that have gone through uh, mental health tech training so that they're right there uh, of an age of a similar demographic and background with our sailors and Marines who can talk to them uh, and get that initial uh, dialogue started so that we can start the dialogue and then they can get additional treatment where needed. I, the, in March of 2020, I had a conversation with Aaron Weiss, the chief information officer of the Navy. We talked extensively about transitioning to the cloud. We talked about laying uh, a more modern infrastructure for the Navy. That was in San Diego. We came home from that. And about five days later, everything locked down because of coronavirus. And you and, and the rest of the military transitioned primarily where possible to a remote work environment. What does that look like today? And how do you expect that to move forward, sir? So we had a significant challenge moving to a remote work environment. We were not um, in a place where we could put our entire workforce uh, and have them work remotely. Uh, we had to make a significant investment in capacity and capability and then also in the mindset of our leaders as to how they managed a remote workforce. Uh, the Navy and Marine Corps did an outstanding job doing this. Uh, we plussed up our um, existing technology back at the beginning of coronavirus to get people access to their files online. And then we made a systemic investment in upgrading our technology, both of our network and then also of the individual uh, key Microsoft applications that are on our computers. Uh, we've shifted from you know, legacy software to Microsoft's uh, Office 365 in the cloud. Uh, that's ongoing now. Uh, we're shifting it to where people can access that from home without coming through our network. So we're decreasing the requirements on our network. Then we're also making some major long overdue investment into our network to change it from a, a network that operates through five nodes and key fleet concentration areas uh, to a more modern network like you would see at you know, any company or other federal agency. So it's a huge improvement in our capability over the last 15, 16 months. Uh, Tom, we have a, less than a minute left. I know that when you hand off uh, possibly to uh, Carlos del Toro, whose confirmation hearing will take place in the Senate Armed Services Committee this week, I know you will tell whoever succeeds you that the Navy's fighting force is strong and the people there are tremendously capable. What else will you tell your successor when you hand off the reins of the, of, of the Navy, sir? Uh, I've got a number of things prepped to talk to him about, you know, the, the challenges we've been facing and dealing with as we go through the, um, uh, the work around sexual assault prevention and response. Uh, the Secretary of Defense has his independent review commission. They've issued a report, uh, recommendations up to President Biden, and we're moving forward on that. Uh, there's a lot of other initiatives that are going on and that he's inheriting a uh, strong fighting force and uh, a lot of great leaders that are going to help him succeed. Tom Harker, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Francis. Up next, an artificial intelligence blast for every agency. Straight ahead on Government Matters, one of the leaders of the effort lists the goals and the potential problems ahead. You're watching 7 News.
Welcome back. The White House will launch a task force to focus on breakthroughs in artificial intelligence for federal agencies. The National Science Foundation will work with the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy to expand AI education and resources. Erwin Gianchandani is the Deputy Assistant Director for Computer and Information Science and Engineering at the National Science Foundation. He's co-chair of the National AI Research Resource Task Force. Erwin, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What do you believe will be the biggest focus areas of this task force? Well, great to see you again, Francis. Thanks very much for having me. And I'm delighted to be able to talk a little bit about this task force. So uh, as you noted, uh, this task force is something that Congress actually called upon uh, NSF, as well as the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy to work together to establish. And over the course of an 18 to 24 month timeframe to really develop a roadmap for how we can try to get to a national AI research resource uh, at the end of the day. Now, let me just take a step back here for a second and note that when you think about artificial intelligence and the revolution that we're seeing in AI today, a lot of that is highly driven by access to unprecedented computational resources as well as access to data sets. So we're seeing computational resources of the form, uh, for example, the supercomputer that the National Science Foundation funded at the University of Texas, Austin, a couple of years ago, Frontera, uh, at the time the world's fastest supercomputer, as well as cloud computing resources, as well as resources at a campus level, individual universities and organizations as well. So this is really about how can we potentially stitch those resources together uh, and create a unified resource that can allow for researchers, faculty, students, and others uh, to really be able to experiment and drive innovations, both in terms of artificial intelligence, machine learning, knowledge representation, reasoning, and so forth, as well as in a number of different application areas from agriculture to transportation to, to education and so forth. Who will be your greatest stakeholders or shareholders across the government? It strikes me that the Chief Data Officers Council and the individual Chief Data Officers will be tremendously important to the work that you're about to undertake, Irwin. Well, absolutely. I think that we're looking to be able to partner with folks across the federal government, as well as folks in the in the private sector and in academia too. So when Congress established uh, or, or called for the establishment of this task force, they wanted the task force to comprise four members from government, four members from uh, academia and four members from private industry. And so you, if you look at the composition, that's exactly where we are today. And I think that was very intentional and, and, and very wise as well at the end of the day, because we do wanna be able to ensure that we bring in diverse perspectives uh, from across government. And that includes the CDOs. It also includes some of the foremost research funding agencies. Uh, NIST is a member of the task force to be able to think through security and privacy preserving techniques and capabilities as well. Um, but then also making sure that at the end of the day, we're representative of the broader research ecosystem across the country to include academe as well as private industry. Erwin, I can say this, I know you can't, when there are congressional mandates, you have congressional mandates. There are things that Congress expects you to do. How are you preparing this task force and the work ahead now to meet not just the compliance exercises that Congress wants you to undertake, but the spirit of it, to really prepare the government for AI excellence. 
So that's a great question, Francis. And I'll just say that I think if you look at the legislation uh, and, and, and what we're being charged to do, this is really something that uh, I think is, is very important and, and very bipartisan in nature, right? We are trying to be able to think through over the course of the next uh, 12 to 18 months, uh, the development of first an interim report and then a final report that will really get at what are the uh, key ingredients for a research resource. So starting to think through computational assets, thinking through data assets, software workflows as well, uh, to be able to run uh, uh, experiments, modeling and simulation on our resources. Um, thinking through the, the security and privacy issues, the user interfaces, and, and something that we often don't talk enough about, education and workforce development training the both the current generation and the future generation of of experts when it comes to how do you interface with this type of a resource how do you plug into this type of a resource so i think that you know there are a lot of different stakeholders and constituencies that we have to ensure are reflected we're going to have public meetings over the course of this summer and fall and into next year uh, we're also thinking about uh, putting out a request for information an rfi that will canvas broadly uh, a wide spectrum of stakeholders, we want all the great inputs that can then come together and be synthesized and harmonized through the work of this task force. We have less than a minute left, Erwin, and you anticipated my last question, which is what's the timeline look like for all your deliverables? Yeah, so, so the task force was officially constituted at the beginning of June. Uh, from that point forward, we have about a year to produce an interim report. So I would expect to have something in that realm sometime around next May or June timeframe. Uh, and then a final report that would be produced. And again, this is about trying to develop a roadmap uh, that would then be picked up and executed upon potentially down the road, but a final report that would be due about six months after that. So sometime next November, uh, October, November, December timeframe next fall. So fall of 2022. Erwin, thanks very much for joining me today. It's great to have you back. Thanks so much. Up next, the number one story of the week, the Pentagon blows up three years of cloud work. Straight ahead on Government Matters, making up lost ground for the military's warfighters. You're watching 7 News. Welcome back. Now, the number one story of the week. The Pentagon's Jedi is dead. The Defense Department will try again to build an enterprise cloud capability with a different model this time. Emily Murphy's former administrator of the General Services Administration. Mark Foreman is executive vice president for enterprise optimization and transformation at Dynamic Integrated Services. He's former eGov administrator at the Office of Management and Budget and former federal chief information officer. Friends, welcome. It is good to see both of you today. Mark, I start with you. How do we move forward? How does the department move forward in building the cloud capability that it needs for warfighting? Well, the drama's over. Stop the dramas. We can finally get past that, right? Uh, look, uh, they, they're uh, were infrastructure as a service cloud services that came to the forefront now more than 10 years ago. So we've got to move forward now in understanding what, what people call a catalog of IT services. And those you got to think of as products. So I think we've got to move forward with understanding What's the IT strategy? How does the creation of the IT services coming at a DOD wide level support what each of the services departments and the, the different operating units, especially for the state need? 
as an outside observer, this is not coming from the Pentagon, this is coming from my brain, Mark, but it looks like we have now officially an OCONUS cloud strategy from the department. The department says it will release the CONUS cloud strategy in the coming months and then let its new contract in October. Does that sound like a logical timeline to get all its ducks in order, Mark? Well, it sounds really fast to me. You know, I, I will say they've got some really, really good people working in that cloud management office um, between uh, leadership coming from the defense digital services Walt Kaczynski who actually worked with us in in creating FASA as a DTLE from DOD back when I was on the hill so uh, I'm really impressed with the team they put together and I'm very hopeful but I think that's really ambitious they've got to understand cloud services and that means reaching out to your customers and uh, it's pretty fast for government to be able to do that in three or four months. Emily, what should we look for in October in that RFI to signal the different path that the Pentagon's going to take this time? I think they've been very clear they're gonna go multiple award this time. And I think that's gonna be a win for them because unless you absolutely have a compelling need to go single award, that, that multiple award is gonna de-risk the procurement. It's also gonna mean that you have competing solutions and that it's gonna keep price down. So I think that's gonna be a winner. Also looking at a shorter term contract, three years is the base with two one-year options uh, so that you're going to have the ability to change and not be tied into one strategy for the next 10 years. Given how fast cloud's evolving, that really makes sense. I wondered even, uh, Emily, given, as you say, given how fast te this technology is evolving, if three years isn't too long, can, can the department build on ramps or off ramps into that, e even the three-year contract to give them options if the technology evolves? They absolutely could, or they could also look to supplement it with something like GSA's uh, you know, uh, pending cloud BPA, the work that they're doing on consumption-based IT, using other vehicles like the Air Force's Cloud uh, One or CS Army, or sorry, C Army. Even the work that's happening with Mill Cloud 2.0 right now is very interesting from a procurement standpoint. So trying to find a fleet of solutions rather than just one absolute contract answer. Mark, uh, Emily references Mill Cloud. I guess three years ago when this first came about, I had a conversation off the record with a very high level at that time, DISA official, and I said, what was the dialogue like between you and the people building this contract. And that person said to me, they never ask me anything. Is that part of the problem here potentially? Is that there are pieces of the department that should be talking to each other as they prepare this new deal? I'm not sure it's part of the problem, but certainly part of the solution. Um, the, the concept here really comes back to uh, this concept that was in the book, The Goal. You, you've got to understand from an end-to-end -end perspective, the flow that goes into determining what services the Defense Department and the different organizations within, not just for the state, but across the military departments need. Uh, to do that, you've got outreach. There's so many cloud con contracts underway. And I think what you end up seeing is they need a platform approach not an infrastructure as a service approach. Emily, one of the things that you pushed as GSA administrator was the fact we have these contracts already in place, use these platforms that already exist instead of creating something new. Is there something that exists that at least the department could model this new JWCC after? I think that absolutely. Um, if you look at the DOS contract, it's actually a task order against Schedule 70 or the old Schedule 70. 
There are, there's about $600 million a year going through Schedule 70 right now for cloud. And GSA is looking to expand that. They're also looking to expand it to, it, to offer a consumption-based model, which creates a whole lot more flexibility for the department if they wanted to use that as part of their solution. I don't think a commercial, like purely commercial civilian solution is going to be the ultimate answer for them, but it's part of the answer or could be part of the answer. What will you watch, Emily, as this unfolds in the coming months till we get to the next phase that the department promises in the fall? I'm going to also be watching what's happening with the other RFIs, the civilian space. For example, the GSA RFI that I mentioned, BGOV's estimating that that's going to be about a billion dollars a year worth of work if DOD were to add any of their requirements to that uh, that purchase, that would, you know, obviously up the the amount of work that would be going through. It also the would change the qualifications and how the uh, they're going to want to structure those on and off ramps for that BPA. Mark Foreman, what's on your mind as this uh, unfolds in the coming months? You know, we used to talk about computer chaos when I was on the Hill. We're looking at cloud chaos in a lot of agencies. The question that has to be done at the DOD CIO level is what is that catalog of services and how do you optimize that across the departments? Most of the contracts for cloud now uh, have existed for years and they all have different services. You might be able to get a few dollars of savings at the aggregate across DOD, but it's really marginal. I think the real issue here is what is the architecture? What are the core IT services? Uh, what's the on-ramp as you were discussing before as these new services emerge? And what's the strategy? Mark Foreman, Emily Murphy, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have both of you today. Thanks so much, Francis. Thank you, Francis. We archive every episode of Government Matters at govmatters.tv and you get a preview and a recap of every show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. You just enter your email in the red box on the website. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity 
to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA has got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA has been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want, here's, what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, Stop, stop the presses, start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's, what's needed, uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today. We just have uh, 20 seconds left, Tony. You have, you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's critical. It's the right time. The technology is very, very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.